Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, produced by the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia. This is Jordan Rich. This podcast celebrates the unique strengths and creativity so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. I have a terrific guest today. He's the school counselor at the Carroll School in Lincoln, Massachusetts. His name is Phil Newman. Phil's job is super important, catering to the emotional needs of students with learning differences, helping them develop skills and confidence for success academically. Phil also helps kids after school with his own organization, Next Step Academics. With he, along with his partner, an experienced learning specialist, provide direct instruction and guidance required to help students become successful, independent learners. We'll tell you more about that later in the podcast. Phil told me that homework was a challenge for him as a student well before it became an integral aspect of his working with kids. So he and the students he works with benefit from his own personal experience. My first question to you, Phil, is the same question I ask everyone. How have the students you've been working with, and students in general, how are they coping with the challenges of the pandemic and how it's affected schoolwork? I would say that, you know, as as you're well aware, and and every listener out there is, is that uh, education and COVID don't mix under the best of circumstances. And I think kind of every layer of vulnerability that a student has is just kind of further highlighted. So if that's a learning difference, that's highlighted. If that's a a social emotional need, that's highlighted. Um, So I think right now, you know, you talk to many teenagers and many people that are former teenagers, you talk to adults, you know, when you think back to your eighth and ninth grade years, it's often like looked back maybe with some positive memories, but definitely with a lot of uh, fraught. So I work with kids that are vulnerable and are managing COVID just like the rest of us with ups and downs. Um, but the learning and the, the learning difference piece mm. is, is totally highlighted right now in a way that that is, um, you know, I've never I've never seen before. Well, I imagine particularly with issues like hybrid learning, if that occurs, obviously the Carroll School is doing its thing. But what does that do on top of everything else when a student can't be in the same room with the teacher? Under best of circumstances, we talk about multi-sensory learning. How can we get kids engaged in as many kind of tangible ways as possible? We also talk about cultivating an environment conducive to learning, a place that kind of radiates safety, structure, routine, and, and under with distance learning, many of those are either very compromised or at least impacted kind of on a daily basis. So for kids with learning differences, you know, if they could stare at a screen and kind of just uh, digest information, they probably wouldn't need the level of support that a Carroll school or a student on a, a on a strong IEP or another independent school w- would have provided under the best of circumstances. Mm. So, you know, a, a learning differences in the educational system are already bump up heads against each other. But under this circumstance, you know, kids are at an inherent disadvantage. Mm. Um, so it's trying to mitigate that as much as possible. You have a very important role in the school, but uh, there isn't a fill in every school, in every public school. So what what's your sense of what's happening around the country to students who have learning issues who don't have the access that they do to somebody like you? Yeah, no, I feel very lucky. In my role, I work with 43 kids. There's not many social workers in a school setting. 
that that work with a, a caseload of 43. Um, so I think for for a lot of kids, it means that they're getting that they need to get their support in other places, whether that be from parents, whether that be from coaches, whether that be, you know, um, from the teachers themselves. And I think that the kids that are doing the best are are with a caring adults that have an understanding of the whole child, the child's learning mm-hmm. needs in relation to the kind of their emotional and their social needs. Right. And this is the most difficult part of this problem. The parents are in their own funk. I mean, everyone's been affected up and down uh, of all ages. Kids who normally could lean on mom and dad and maybe sibs are having a really tough time. I would say that parents right now are are also in an incredibly unfair situation and that parents are, are now part of the educational process in a way that, you know, they maybe weren't, you know, a year ago. Um, and whether that is, you know, designing, as I said, you know, a structured setting for kids to access academics, you know, or creating a safe environment for kids conducive to learning, you know, now that's on the parents. Um, and that is an incredible burden for working parents um, or for parents that, that are just not accustomed to that challenge. And so I think that what we're seeing is that kids that have, you know, family units that, that kind of struggle putting in that structure and support are just further highlighted and impacted. Hmm. Um, so kids that struggle with with kind of navigating independence outside of the classroom, it is a huge whammy. So homework, homework is huge right now, very, very difficult. And then also any, um, you know, what we know about kids with dyslexia, they also tend to struggle with executive functioning. Mm-hmm. So kind of navigating and organizing their physical wor- world, but also kind of their, their own thoughts. And, and staying organized, staying on top of work, staying engaged is, is really, really tough when you're doing it from the confines of your bedroom versus an academic institution. Right. So what are some of the techniques that somebody in your position would employ to help students in the ninth grade cope? And obviously, that's a broad question, but we're here to sort of promote positive and what steps we can all take and have taken for our kids. And, and I, I very much believe in the positive. And to give you a broad answer, you know, the best thing that I can uh, say to any any parent, any educator working with, with, with students with learning differences would be to cultivate um, understanding and context to students' experiences. You know, what happens is that students who learn differently and, and struggle in school, and I, I work with many kids that, that are undiagnosed or diagnosed late, they've found kind of years of sustained unsuccess, non-success in school. And what we have to do is kind of rewrite the narrative um, for these students. It's not that you're stupid. It's not that you're lazy. It's, it's not that you can't be successful. It's not that you're a non-student. Um, it's that you learn differently. Let's help you understand the context of your difference and begin to change the narrative and, and empower students. And so, and that, that doesn't have to come from a counseling office. I think that that comes from as many caring adults. What I have found that if, if you don't change the narrative for students or assume that they have the same understanding of their experience or their learning difference that, that you do as an educator, they're going to fill it in themselves. And they often don't fill in their narrative in a way that, that's, const- that's constructive mm-hmm. to themselves as students mm-hmm. or as young people. That's when we get kids that identify as lazy, identify as stupid, identify as, as maybe athletes, but not student athletes. And, and that's where the damage is done. The switch in terminology, and we use the terms that you're using, of course, learning difference here in this podcast, that alone is such a, an important division from where we were, an important step away from 
the stigma? I mean, I know it's it's broadly accepted at Carroll, but it's not broadly accepted around the country and in other institutions, is it? No, not at all. I, I talked to caring, talented educators and, and, and social workers and psychologists and, you know, neuropsych evaluators, and, and they still use, you know, uh, you know, uh, I don't even have the right terminology now. Uh, learning di- not disabilities, disability, unbelievable right. disability. And and the truth is, is that, you know, I, I do believe it's a it's a learning difference. I don't I don't think it's fluff. I think it's I think it's reality. I, I work with very smart, very capable kids that just process information differently. Mm-hmm. And and for me, you know, the biggest kind of takeaway there from the stigma is is that it has to be both empowering, but I do think you have to at the same time acknowledge the struggle. When I talk to my teenagers and I just say, hey, you just have this incredible superpower. You're you're this dyslexic, you're creative, you know, you're you're intuitive, you're funny, you're smart, you're athletic, you have all these amazing, which is true. It's absolutely true. And I get to see it every single day and it's a real joy. But they're like, yeah, and Mm. it's hard Mm. and I've struggled. And the pain is real and the anxiety is there. And and so it, it has to be both. I think it needs to be empowering, but then there really needs to be an acknowledgement oh, that yes. like, and it's tough. This yeah. is not easy. School was not designed for you or most schools were not right. designed for you. I'm so glad you said that word acknowledgement because that matters to people uh, who are not dealing with learning difference, but almost any other issue in life, uh, emotional problems of any kind or even physical issues pander to me and tell me that I'm terrific because I have, you know, overcome anything. Maybe I have overcome it, but it still hurts like hell. <laughs> and, I, and I work so with you know, eighth graders through college students. When you tell a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old uh, that, like, they're, they're oh, you're just amazing, and they're like, yeah, like, that doesn't fly. <laughs> not, not, you know, I think as with the parents and with, the, you know, the, the adults that have this unconditional, you know, support for the, the kids that we work with, I think it goes really far. And I think mm-hmm. adults love to, to, to promote the message, and they should. It's such an important message, and it's true. But for the kids themselves, without feeling understood and acknowledged, it doesn't tend to land. So mm. I think you need to really hit the balance as the adults of like, it's hard and we're going to support you. And, you know, your strengths are real. <laughs> right. And, and let's celebrate them and, and foster them at the same time. Phil, how do you integrate the counseling work you do with the, the other academic teachers whose role is a very important one at Carroll, let's say? Do you work one-to-one with the students and also sidebar with the teachers to know what's going on in their experience as well? I have a, I'm, again, I just told you, I'm very lucky with my, you know, small caseload of 43. I, I also am very lucky that, that I have a ton of a, both support and autonomy and collaboration where I'm at at Carroll. And that I actually don't have a model where like I meet with, you know, little Johnny for 20 minutes every Tuesday for this time and, and Susie, you know, on Fridays for, th- for 35 minutes. It's a really full integration model where I am constantly in classrooms and constantly pulling kids. I am on the phone with parents and teachers all day. I'm meeting with kids sometimes regularly and scheduled. Um, but it's really in a, in a collaboration and in the, in the terminology that we use at the Carroll school that I, I, you know, use outside is this whole child perspective and that, you know, it's counseling doesn't just happen. The social emotional needs of children don't just happen in my office for 20 minutes. Mm. 
Um, they show up in the classroom. They show up at home doing homework. They show up at the dinner table. They show up getting ready for soccer practice. And the academic needs, you know, for kids with learning dis- uh, differences cor- often correspond directly with their social, emotional, and behavioral needs. So it needs to really be a, a collaborative effort if you want to, to see success. <laughs> and so I, I am in classes, um, you know, often. Um, but I'm also working with kids on the soccer field and I'm working with kids in after school study hall and I'm, I'm working with kids, um, you know, in advisory, planning homework. Um, and I'm working with kids, you know, around very typical teenage issues of friendship and navigating independence and parents and social media and, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety and worry about the future. And, and those don't happen in a vacuum either because they always happen in correspondence with, with who they are as a learner. We're hearing a lot about the rising number of cases of uh, depression, anxiety, the combination of the two across the board uh, with all ages, but particularly teenagers. Are the group of students we're talking about in, in your sphere and elsewhere at greater risk because of the learning difference issue? What should parents be thinking about or know, trying to notice? So I think so. I have seen and in, in working, I, I work in conjunction with a lot of outside providers and they're bursting at the seams. Um, I, I, you know, right now, the kind of social emotional needs, anxiety and depression in particular, um, they were all already on the rise. Um, and I, I think it was more than it did. Both the statistics did kind of correspond with, with my kind of professional experience over the last 10 years. But I would say that right now in the last 10 months, significantly elevated. Um, mm-hmm. I think that they're, you know, by nature, kids are social and connected, and they're being told very appropriately so that they can't. Um, you know, if you have a learning difference, school is already hard, and now it's dramatically modified in ways that, that again, play to your disadvantages as opposed to their many advantages. Um, and it puts incredible strain on families and, and the family mm. systems. Yeah. And so those are really coming to a, to a head. And so what I would tell parents is you're not alone. I, I, parents all the time pick up the phone. They, they, you know, they're like, I had this awesome mom call me last the other week and say, am I crazy? And, I, and no, you're not crazy. <laughs> yeah. um, this is really hard. Your daughter is struggling. It is not a reflection of you as a parent. Um, and I think that when parents get the most stuck is when they don't communicate with schools, communicate with providers, and they try to fix it themselves because they think that, you know, there's maybe a stigma you know, attached to maybe the mental health side of things. I'd love for you to share at least one or two quick situations in which you've been able to guide and help students and move them in the right direction. Uh, Obviously, your job is very challenging, but I want to talk about the the home runs here. Do any come to mind? Oh, totally. There's many, many of them. It's a very rewarding job. Um, you know, there's a few guiding principles I, I, I have, and these are not necessarily original at, at all, but one of which is, you know, kids do well when they can. I, I've yet to meet a kid that wakes up and says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to wake up late. <laughs> I'm going to drag my feet, get out of the house. I'm going to leave on like a bad note with mom who dropped me off. I'm going to like have my head down all day in class. I'm not going to have had my homework done. I'm going to get home, fight with my brother, get my phone taken away and then go to bed upset. I've yet to like meet the kid that is like, that is what they like wake up to do. So I think the biggest guiding principle is just to understand that like, okay, like if, if that is a kid's day, we got to figure out the barriers. 
So that's like what I look at. What are the barriers to a kid's success? Because I don't believe kids naturally wake up to have a hard time. I think next you got to understand that like behavior is communicating. So what is this kid saying by his behavior or their behavior and, and how can that be informative of, of a solution? So that makes me think of a specific student who uh, eighth, eighth grade boy, very, I mean, talk about dyslexic advantage, like up, up the wazoo. He super creative was like, we have a, a fab lab where kids get to be hands-on. This kid was doing unbelievable projects every day. They were like mind blowing. And he would go, he would rifle through like seven or eight of them uh, a week. And it was like amazing. And he'll go on to invent some, some crazy device. But when it came to say math class, he would get, uh, he'd have a test, he'd have paper, he'd have a paper put in front of him and he would become incredibly overwhelmed, complete tantrum meltdown. And I, I would describe him as a, a boogery, a boogery mess. Mm. No eighth grade boy wants to be a boogery mess in the middle of their class mm. um, in a way and rip up their paper and, and basically, you know, have, have this embarrassing, overwhelming moment. And, and it sounds so simple, but, but what we did is we realized that one of the barriers is he just became incredibly overwhelmed by kind of the amount of material he saw that even though he was so capable, looking at even a full worksheet became so overwhelming. So what we did is we just started circling the first three problems and we just lowered kind of the bar, which is a whenever you make an accommodation for a student, you always have to think of the exit strategy because it, it, you can't just lower the bar for these bright kids. It's not a good, it's not a good plan. They don't hit their potential and they don't mm. learn and grow. Mm. But if that's a starting point where you can get them to the table, great. So what we, and then we just kept going. We circled more problems and we slowly built it up and we always reflected back to the student, their success. And, and this student ended up, he's, he's now going off to, I got a great note. It was a few years ago, he's going off to college. He's going to be very successful. And I remember pulling him aside um, a, a, about two or three months into this, where we just slowly were making these accommodations and ramping up. And I asked him, I'm, I'm going to say his name is John. His name's not John. I said, you know, John, what, what, was, the, what was the difference because it was the same work. We just presented to it to him differently. And he goes, you never let up. Hmm. And, and I really think that there, that it, it sounds, you know, it sounds very simple. We modified his work, but it was more than that. It was a modification of work to meet him where it was at. It was not leaving it there. It was ramping it up slowly and consistently and constantly reflecting his success to him. And so it ended up being a very simple, um, a, a very simple example, but we do that now. That's just standard practice. We do that over and over and over again. And it was very clear that this student was so overwhelmed because he didn't think he could be successful. And that was so intolerable that he would have a meltdown. Yeah. So, you know, that was where we had to start. We had to show him he could be successful and avoid the meltdown. That is such a common sense approach. I can actually borrow that and use that in my own life. Uh, we all tend to overtake certain projects and, and 
outbid ourselves when it comes to our talent. And uh, sometimes less is more. But that's a great, great story. Before we wrap up, and uh, again, congratulations to you and, and everybody at the Carroll School. You guys have been guests on the podcast, many of you. Uh, let's talk about your after-school activities, because you don't stop at the end of the school day. You have something called Next Step that you work with a partner on. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Next Step Academics, is it's a few years old now. And really, the the idea is that it's a, we have a dual modality approach. So I'm I'm a licensed clinical social worker. My partner is a as a special educator and has been working with kids with learning differences for for many years. And what we found is that homework is the least supported part of kids' days. And what I found in my work at the Carroll School is that even at this wonderful institution that understood where kids learn and had really well thought out and designed homework, kids would go home, they'd become overwhelmed. They'd be unsuccessful. They'd often cause conflict. And then they'd get into class and they weren't prepared to learn. So either conflict happened there or then they weren't accessing their academics. And I kind of thought to myself, there must be a better way. Like we have to break this cycle, let alone kids that were not in an appropriate school with all those advantages. There must be there must be a better way to do this. And so, and I really thought that there was a behavioral, emotional side to navigating homework and an academic side, a tangible skill-based side. And it was something that as, as someone who I have learning differences myself, um, that it, that was really what, what I suffered with is in mm. high school and, and in middle school is the, the jump in independent work really kicked my butt. And so I designed this program, it's all online, that, that we, I take a bunch of kids basically from young high school now transitioning into college, and we, we try to meet their emotional and academic needs um, and, and with the hopes to, to really develop independent student skills because they don't really teach that in school. They may teach you math, right? They may teach you how to be a student in the classroom, but they don't teach you how to be a student outside because they can't. And, and often, even the most well-intentioned families aren't equipped to do it either. So these kids are really suffering, and it's just creating a lot of havoc. So we, we try to address that need. Excellent. As a gift to the audience, would you uh, let us know online where we can find out more about Next Step? Yeah. So uh, we are at nextstepacademicsma.com, and you can email us at hello at nextstepacademicsma.com. I've got to tell the audience, uh, strictly a, an observation on my part, I email hundreds of people a week. I mean, constantly setting up interviews. And all. We had one of the best interchanges. I just felt connection with you, this warmth, this enthusiasm. And I can sense it now as we talk to each other via Zoom like everybody else in the world. But uh, you really dig what you're doing, I can tell. I, you know, I, 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 this is a passion. I couldn't do anything else. And I, you know, I, I spent my last night doing it and, you know, I'm with two kids that are struggling and they're going to make it work and I know they'll be okay. And I love just being part of that process. I, I love working with kids with learning differences that haven't figured it out yet. Well, we're... And, and, and that's really, <laughs> it, it's rewarding, complicated, and, uh, and, and there's a need. Well, I think you're filling you're filling that need and and also inspiring a lot of other people to get on board with some of these concepts. Phil, thank you so much. It was delightful meeting you, and I think you've made a lot of people very proud of the work you and other counselors are doing. Thank you so much, Jordan. Appreciate the time. Thank you to Phil Newman. To find out much more, you can visit carolschool.org. 
that's carolschool.org, or check out Phil's second position as the co-founder of Next Step Academics. The website again for that is nextstepacademicsma.com. Thanks once again for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. We're seeking personal stories about your dyslexia journey and would love to hear from you. If you or someone you care about have a story to tell, we would consider featuring it on this podcast. Send the story to me, Jordan, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, Jordan at chartproductions.com. Chart is spelled C-H-A-R-T. We'd love to hear from you. Remember to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast, available on all major web platforms. And once again, for much more, visit WICD.org. That's WICD.org.